Good morning, friends. What a pleasure it is to open God's Word before you and to work together through this wonderful story that Gretchen has just read for us. In case you don't own a copy of the Bible, I want to right now invite you to take as our gift to you one of the Bibles that should be within arm's reach of you where you're seated. There should be one right in front of you uh, or beside you on the pew where you're seated. I want you to take that with you today as our gift to you, but I'd also want to encourage you to have it open in front of you right now for the next bit of our time together. There's a big reason for that. Practically, I'm going to be going back to this text over and over and over. I'm going to be referring to things that are in it. It'll it'll help you a lot if you've got it open so you can see what I'm talking about. But even more than that, the big reason is that our conviction as Christians that's gathered us here today on a Sunday morning is that the God who made us has also spoken to us. That he's spoken in words that even we can understand. Despite all that separates us from a God who could make everything that is, he's chosen to be understandable to us through his words. And everything that we hope for, everything that we aim to do coming out of our time together today is based in that hope, that conviction that God has spoken here. So I'm going to ask you not to, not to pay close attention to what I say because I'm saying it, but to pay attention to what I'm going to do my best to show you that's already here Because all of us and all of our hope depends on God being true to what he's spoken. You'll find what we're going to consider together today on page 868 of the little Bible that should be in arm's reach for you. I want to encourage you one last time to turn there and have it open as we work our way through it this morning. Uh, Back in college, um, many moons ago, I spent a couple summers as an intern at a church in Memphis, Tennessee. One of those summers, a guy asked me if I wanted to go mountain biking with him at this trail in a local park. You know, there's not a lot of options for mountain biking in Memphis, being as it is on the shores of the Mississippi River. It's pretty flat over there, but they've gotten gotten a park worked out a little bit off the banks of the river that had a few little dips and rises in it. We were going to go mountain biking together. He was into it. I'd never been. But I like this guy a lot. I figured, you know, what? why not? Sign me up. I was young. I was relatively healthy, or so I thought. Of course, I had basically phoned in any sort of cardio workout for myself uh, as soon as I started college, and this is probably two years in at this point. So it's been two years since I've had a nice, like, fast-pumping heartbeat going. But, you know, back when I had my 10-speed mountain bike as a kid, I was great. I mean, I was motoring all over town. No trouble at all. I could go all day on the sidewalks of Frisco City, Alabama. I figured, I mean... It's riding a bike. You don't forget how to do that. Of course, I got busy that day. I worked straight through lunch. Forgot to drink any water at all, all day. But come on, we're riding bikes. It's not like we're actually jogging. I mean, the bike does half the work, doesn't it? You just pedal and it keeps rolling. It'll be fine. Of course, it was uh, pushing 100 degrees that day at 4.30 p.m. when we hit that trail. And me, without any kind of conditioning, without any food in my belly, without any water in my system, at 100 degrees heat in Memphis, that's Memphis 100 degrees. If you've been to Memphis in the summer, you know what I'm talking about. I made it about 10 minutes max on this trail before my legs feel like jelly, before my head is literally swimming, before little dark critters are just running back and forth across my line of sight. I had to stop. I had to sit down. I'm panting. I'm almost passing out. And needless to say, I'm done for the day, 10 minutes in, because I wasn't prepared. 
my expectations weren't right. So I didn't make it very far. Clear expectations matter, guys. They matter. They're important going into anything. But they're especially important going into something where the stakes are high. Something where the going might not be so easy. Something that's going to challenge you. One of the main reasons that, that Luke wrote the book that he wrote, the book of Acts, to tell us the story of the birth of Christianity and how it began to spread across the world. One of the main reasons that Luke wrote this story for us is so that we could have expectations that are, that are clear, that are realistic, that are helpful as, as we take up the same work that these churches took up in their time. It's here as a testimony to God's goodness and power, but it's more than just that. It's also a description of what we're called to do and, and an explanation of what we can expect to experience when we take up that calling. Last week, we looked at, uh, in chapter 13 of Acts, we, we, we looked at the very first ever missionary journey. The first time anybody took the gospel from one place where they had it into another part of the world where they didn't have it. It was a journey that Paul then called Saul and his friend Barnabas were sent out on by a local church that had discipled them in, in Antioch. Last week, we looked at chapter 13 to try to understand who all is involved in this mission that Luke puts at the very center of his story. This mission that was given to them and is now given to us. Who's involved? And we looked at some of the main characters. This week, we see that mission come to an end, that first journey. They wrap it up. They come back to Antioch. And in those final verses that Gretchen read, we see them reporting out on what had happened. They get back to their friends, and it's a celebration. I mean, they didn't have PowerPoint slides like we might have on the backside of a, of a missionary journey like this one, but, but they were recounting all the things that God had done through them. That's what Luke tells us at the end of this chapter. So what I want to do is imagine ourselves on the receiving end of that report. That's, that's kind of how, where we are this morning in reading chapter 14. And look back at this whole chapter to figure out what it is they were celebrating. They come to the end of this journey, and they see it as a success. They're happy to report to their friends what God had done through them. What happened? Because... What happened to them helps us know what we can expect to happen to us as we take up the mission that they had. What should our expectations be as we go out in the way that they did? I want to give you four examples from Acts 14 this morning. What should we expect when we take up the mission that they have handed down to us? Friends, the first thing we should expect is conversions. We should expect conversions. We should expect as we go out as his witnesses... To the ends of the earth, people will actually come to trust in Jesus as their only hope in life and death. That's the first main theme that we get in chapter 14. Look with me back at the chapter. They're coming into this, uh, this city called Iconium, having fled from an area where they just preached the gospel, but where there had been some opposition stirred up against them. And they start here in Iconium, the same place they'd started in their last stop. They go to a synagogue, to a gathering with, a, uh, with, with the local meeting of Jews in this city. And they speak of Jesus in the context of the Old Testament scriptures, just like they did back at Pisidian Antioch. And we're told by Luke here that through their speaking, this is verse 1, a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. A great number of both Jews and Greeks come to trust in Jesus. The same thing happens later in chapter 14, near the end of their journey, skipping ahead. Look with me back uh, at verse 21 of this chapter. Skip down near almost to the, to the end of the chapter. Verse 21 says, They preached in this city called Derby, and they made many disciples there. 
And surely when they came back to, to, to report out to Antioch, surely when they declared what God had done with them, surely this is where they began. Friends, we spoke and, and God saved his people. He's, he's really working. And I want to start here this morning because even though it seems so, maybe so obvious, almost too obvious to notice that this is happening, it really shouldn't be so obvious to us, so expected that this would happen. Conversions, both according to, to what the Bible tells us and to what we experience, conversions are miracles of God's grace every single time. There's no reason that Christianity should have taken off as it did. I mean, yeah, true enough, Luke says in this story that God gave them many signs and wonders that they did as they were teaching the gospel, that those signs and wonders, verse 3 says, are, are, are meant to, to bear witness to the word of his grace. But the, 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 the signs and wonders are not the main event. They're just there as kind of a, a, a bolstering of the word that's being preached. The word of grace is the main event. And even when some people see these signs and wonders, many of them don't actually end up believing they see it, but it's not enough. The signs and wonders are not the point. The point is, is this word of grace that's gone out. Why are they believing in this word? It's easy to think, for us, I mean, I'm guilty of this too. Maybe this will sound familiar to you. It's really easy for us, living when we do in the 21st century, on the backside of all this wonderful scientific knowledge that we've gained about how the world works. It's so easy for us to look back on these ancient peoples and think of them as gullible. You know, it's people who would believe basically anything, especially if it comes with some sort of shiny miracle attached to it. But that would be a, a, a massive mistake on our part. A bit of, of chronological snobbery, as someone put it, thinking that just because we are, we're living now and not back then, we see things better than they did. They were no more prepared for this message than we would have been. In fact, in his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul says this same message right here, it's it's foolishness to the Greeks. They didn't want this. And it's a stumbling block to the Jews, he says. They already had worldviews that, that they used to make sense of, of what was going on, positive and negative. They made sense of, of, of and, and decided how are they going to account for what they're seeing through, through lenses they already had. Testing one day. There we go. Thank you for your patience as we try to figure out what's going on with that. I want to get back into this. So... What I was trying to explain before my mic went out is that these Jews and these Greeks from the ancient world were no more predisposed to be happy about what they heard from Paul than we would have been. They already had a way of understanding the world. Jesus didn't fit it. The Jews, they would, they would never naturally have considered worshiping this man that lived in their own lifetime. They were, they were told for their whole life that there is only one God. And no other. This is how they knew themselves as Jews. And now this man is being worshipped by Jews. That's a stumbling block, to say the least. The Greeks, they were looking for an escape from life in this world. They weren't looking for a new body they could live on in forever here in this world. They wanted free of their body. And, and at the heart of Paul's message is, this man came back in a body as real as mine or yours. It, you could have touched it if you had been standing there. That's not what they wanted. That's foolishness. And yet, many Jews... And many Greeks believed. Why? Maybe looking around at those you'd like to see converted to Jesus in your life. Or facing a mission in another part of the world that you've decided to take up or invest in. It can be so easy, friends, at a subconscious level to be hopeless. 
and looking at the, all the barriers that exist to someone coming to faith. And you can easily look at yourself and what you bring to the table, the message and the way that it, that it just alienates people, and think, no way. But friends, conversion to Christianity has never been about someone's ability to persuade someone who's already almost there to cross a line. It's never been the same job that an, that an Apple store salesperson has in convincing someone to move from an iPhone 10 to an iPhone 12. They're already bought into the system. They just need to be convinced to get a slightly better model. That's not hard to do. The Bible talks about conversion as a death-to-life miracle, as a radical shift at every level of who you are. Jesus talked about this as being born again. It's not a natural process that happens wherever you get the conditions just right or wherever you've got someone who's already almost there or whenever you get the right set of speakers up there doing their thing in front of everyone else. This only ever happens when God decides by his power and his grace to intervene in what is normal, in what is natural, to create what didn't exist, to give new life where there was only death. And precisely because this is always a miracle, we should expect conversions. If it wasn't a miracle, conversions are a matter of marketing and salesmanship. Try that on for size if you're trying to kick the gospel into Kabul or Abu Dhabi or Stockholm. See how your marketing skills serve you there. There are a mountain of barriers no salesman could ever climb. But the gospel converting a heart, it's a miracle every single time. It's no more or no less likely to happen for one of our children who grow up inside this church as to happen on the streets of Kabul when the gospel reaches someone because it always takes a miracle and God has said he's going to work that miracle. He said, take the gospel, I'll take care of it. So friends, no matter where we're going, no matter how unlikely it seems that anyone would take this message seriously, look at what happens here. They preach and many Jews and Greeks believed. We should expect the same from our ministry in the world. But lest we get too rosy a picture, lest we start to think that the growth of Christianity had moved only from victory unto victory, we need to see another theme just as obvious in this story as the growth of Christian converts. We need to see a second theme, something else we should expect. We should not only expect conversions as we take up this mission that they took up first, we should also expect opposition. We should expect opposition. Where the gospel makes progress, wherever people come to believe the word, other people are going to rise up against it because the word always divides. We see this all through Acts. It's one of the most important, most central themes in this story. This word divides people between those who hear and believe and those who hear and do not. Let me show you just a couple of examples. Look at verse 2 with me in chapter 14. You know, just after a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed, the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, same two groups, and poisoned their minds against the brothers. They stir them up to oppose Paul and those that were with him. Verse 4 says the people of the city were divided. 
And then verse 5 says they're, they're really serious about it. There was an attempt made by both Gentiles and Jews, the same groups that, that saw people come to faith, not just to run them out of town, not just to mistreat them, but to stone them. Stonings in the ancient world were a lot like we would think of a lynching today, a, a, a mob who gets together to, to, to execute justice on their terms, on their own authority, outside the due process of law that takes it on themselves to put an end to someone. Paul and Barnabas get wind of this plot somehow and move on to another town ahead of them. They're getting out just ahead of this opposition, carrying the gospel with them as they go. But, but look at verse 19. These, these are dogged pursuers here. These, these are, in verse 19, we see Jews from their last two stops, from Pisidian Antioch and from Iconium, who have bounded together, and they're on this trail tracking down Paul and, and Barnabas as they go. And look at what verse 19 says. They catch up with them, persuade the crowds, and stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. The only thing as consistent in this story as the opposition to the gospel as it moves forward is Paul's perseverance through that opposition. Paul isn't phased by this. And Luke tells us this story so that we won't be phased by this either, so that we won't be surprised when, when, when we are opposed for being Christians. Paul expected this response, and he would have us to expect it too. Follow the signs with me. Back to verse 2. These minds are, are poisoned against them. Verse 3 says, So, in other words, therefore, because the minds were poisoned against them, because people start to oppose the gospel, therefore, they remained for a long time. That's why they stayed. Because of the opposition, because of their decision, their, their desire to push right through it, to slam through it, and make sure that the gospel stays put right here where they've planted it. Sure, they leave ahead of the stoning plot. They're not out there trying to get killed, but, and they're not provoking people like a bunch of jerks who build their identity or on being hated by others. But, but then in verse 19, when Paul is stoned, look what he does. Verse 19 into verse 20, the disciples gather about him. He rises up. He's not actually dead. And what does he do? He goes right back into the same city that just stoned him. They're hounding him, but he's as relentless as they are, and even more so, because from this town, he goes into another town where he's right back at it, teaching people about Jesus. And verse 22 shows us why. He preaches the gospel in Derby, makes many disciples, and starts retracing his steps back to Lystra, where he was stoned, back to Iconium, where they tried to stone him, back to Antioch, where they first got so upset with him, they forced him out of town. And at every stop, verse 22, he's strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, here it is, saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul expected this opposition. This is normal as a response to Christianity. Now, friends, I'm not saying we ought to expect to be stoned here in America as Christians. Thank God. That is very, very, very unlikely. Praise the Lord for that. I'm not even saying we ought to expect our international workers to be hounded like this wherever they go abroad. The risk is higher where they're going. I'm not even expecting this for them. We trust the Lord with that. What I, what I am saying 
is that nothing should surprise us, all the way up to it, including what happened to Paul. Nothing should surprise us as a response of opposition to this gospel. We should never assume that that our peaceful coexistence or even our being celebrated for what we're doing or saying is a sign that we're doing great. And I think especially here in America, we can tend to to view our popularity or lack thereof as a a symptom of our success or or of our our vibrancy. But that's just not how it works. How we're being received by others can never determine our confidence in what we're doing or whether Jesus is worth it. I think here we do face a special temptation in our country to be shocked or even outraged at signs that our host culture isn't okay with our beliefs or practices. As if we have an entitlement to their respect. But friends, sometimes that opposition that we experience is, is actually a sign that we are being really clear about who Jesus is. That, that the message is going forward just as we hoped and prayed that it would. Sometimes it's a sign that things are working, not a sign that they aren't. It could be a sign that we don't belong here, that we've not made our home where we shouldn't make our home, that we understand where our citizenship truly is, that we haven't gotten comfortable seeking what everyone else is as if Jesus weren't the crucified and risen Lord of all that is and of every part of our lives. In a way, I guess what I'm saying is we ought to want to keep Christianity weird. If we're faithful in our mission abroad and even here at home, we should expect opposition. We should expect what Paul got. There's a third expectation that comes to us out of Acts chapter 14. We should expect conversions. Praise the Lord. We should expect conversions, but we should also expect opposition right there alongside the advance of the gospel. And thirdly, We should expect misunderstanding. We should expect misunderstanding. This takes me to my favorite bit in this chapter, verses 8 to 18. I love this little story. I want to quickly tell it back to you and focus on what happened, what went wrong, and what we can learn from it. Let's look first at what happened in this little story. Paul and Barnabas arrive in a town called Lystra. That's verse 8. To find a man born with a debilitating disability. This was the sort of disability that in this time and place would have shackled a person to poverty and shame and inescapable dependence pretty much for life. While Paul is teaching, he sees this man. He can see that this man has faith, that this man trusts in the living God. And so Paul, like Jesus before him, like Peter before him, comes to this man and speaks directly to him. He says, stand upright on your feet. And just as with Jesus and just as with Peter before him, Paul's words change things. Paul's words carry a power from God into the life of this man. And immediately, we're told, this man sprang up and began walking. That's verse 10. As so often in Jesus' ministry, as we see so often happen in the Gospels, miracles like this one don't automatically lead to faith. They can cause confusion as often as they create trust. And in this case, it is 
absolutely confusion that reigns. Look further with me into the story. The crowd assumes that, that, that the power they've just seen belongs to Paul and Barnabas. They don't see that Paul and Barnabas have just been used by God for God's power to come into this man's life. They see Paul and Barnabas. They see what Paul's done. They lift up their voices in their own language and say, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Here we go. They figure one must be Zeus the main god in their pantheon of deities. The other, Paul, because he's doing all the talking, he must be Hermes, the messenger of the gods. In fact, there was a local legend not far from, from Lystra that told of a time in the ancient past when they had, in fact, been visited by Zeus and Hermes and no one had recognized them. And in judgment for this, Zeus and Hermes wiped out the town, taking everyone with them. And they're thinking, not on our watch, not this time. They've come back and this time we're going to get it right. So they run out. They grab the priest of Zeus from outside the town. They bring him back with all the things they would need to make sacrifice to, to, these, to these two men whom they take for gods. Now what's wrong with this reaction? That's what happens. What's wrong with it? I mean, clearly this is a, a case of mistaken identity. They're not in fact gods. They're just men. But, but couldn't that be turned to good? I mean... When the protocol droid C-3PO was mistaken for a god by the Ewoks on the forest moon of Endor in Star Wars Episode Six: The Return of the Jedi, the rebel leaders decided they'd keep that fiction going. They decided to take these lemons and make some lemonade. Paul and Barnabas might have done that. They might have even justified it. You know what? They think we're a big deal, and maybe we are actually a little bit of a big deal. But we could use our big dealness as a platform for Jesus. Let's let them need us and then we'll sneak Jesus in the back door. That's not how they respond at all. They are mortified at this, at being mistaken for gods. Look at this, look at their response. Why are you doing these things, they say, verse 15. We're also men of like nature with you. In other words, we're just like you are. We don't have anything you don't have. We don't have what you need. We bring you good news. Do you see that in verse 15? Here's what we are. We are bringers of good news. Friends, it's not just that they want God to get the glory that God deserves for healing this man. It's so much bigger than that. They want these people to get the salvation that they need. That's what they want. We bring you good news. It is good news that we aren't the gods you're looking for. They don't want to be mistaken for Zeus and Hermes because they want to turn them away altogether from that old way of seeing the world from that old way of relating to what they thought were gods, from that futile system, Paul says. They want to turn them from that to a God who's really alive, a living God, one who has actual power to help. Look back at what Paul says. We come with good news that you should turn from these vain things, from worshiping gods that just belong to this world, gods like Zeus and Hermes, gods like the god of the sea or the god of fertility or the god of fire, or the god of rain, all these gods that you see as part of this world who help you get what you already want out of this world. We want to turn you away from all that. It's empty. It's futile. It does, it does nobody any good. And we want to turn you to a living God. Look how he describes God. This is a living God who made heaven and earth. He doesn't belong in it. He's not the sea. He's not the rain. He's not what you need for fertility as if he was part of this world. He made it all. He made everything in the earth and the sea. In the past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. In other words, 
You didn't know better than this. You made your own assumptions about how the world works, and God has not told you differently yet through his own word. But he did not leave himself without a witness, verse 17. Why? What was the witness? He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and with gladness. Let me sum this up for you guys. These people responded to Paul and Barnabas as pagans. It's not a pejorative term. It's just a way of describing how they saw the world, paganism. They saw what Paul and Barnabas were and what they offered through the lens they already had for understanding everything. Paul wants to take off those lenses that they were using and give them a new set. See, here's what they believed about the world as pagans. They believed that all that is is what we see around us, that all we can hope for is better life out of this world before we die. That this world is full of, of powers that are either for us or against us. And our job is to make sure they're for us and our agenda. So we press the right buttons. We make the right sacrifices. And these gods that are part of this world just like us but have power that we don't have then work our agenda instead of getting in the way of it. That's how they understood the world. Play your cards right and you'll get what you're hoping for. Slip up and they'll turn against you. And I guess, I guess there's some allure to this way of seeing the world. I mean, it does put you in the driver's seat. It offers you some of the control that, that so many of us would love to have over our lives. We get to set the agenda in a way. But it's just, besides the fact that it's all just lies, it's an awful, awful way to live. Because really what it means is that you're on your own. You have to know what's best for you. You have to know what to ask for. You have to know what buttons to push. You have to push them in the right way, and you'll only get as much help as you can pay for in a best possible scenario, you push all the right buttons, you pay for all the right help, you still die and you lose it all at the end. There's no hope in paganism. So Paul and Barnabas come in and say, no, they shut this down because they don't want to give people what they're already looking for. They want to give people not just an extra bit of leverage for grasping at the next rung in the world's ladder that they're already trying to climb. They want to give them a whole different way of seeing the world and their place in it. They want them to enjoy a freedom that they don't even know to ask for. I was talking this week to a buddy who, who for work, got to go to a, a, an awesome restaurant here locally. At one of these places where the chef is the expert, it doesn't even really ask you what you want. It just brings you good things throughout the night. I love this. I mean, if, I, partly because I love to eat food, but I'm completely ignorant about it and what goes into it and what combinations will actually please me. I, I know my own ignorance drives me to love a place like this. But what I also know is that if I had only ever been asked what I want, start back at the, at the, at near the beginning as a young kid, if I had only ever been asked what I wanted and given what I asked for, I'd just have eaten burgers and fries, happy meals for life. That's all I'd ever know. What I need is, is a chef who's like 10 steps ahead of me, showing me what he knows, leading me step by step into what she can create that I never could. Things, combinations, flavors I don't even know are out there. What a gift to have a meal with someone who's, who knows what you don't and has skill you don't have and isn't going to be limited by your limitations, who opens up to you a whole other world of possibilities. See, that's what Paul and Barnabas want for these these, these people who've come to them with worship. This is what it feels like to belong to a true and living God. You don't get a butler. That's over. But you get a father instead. And that's so much better. Look at how Paul 
describes paganism, God with paganism in the background. Again, look, look back with me at verse 15. He made heaven and earth and everything in them. These are not the gods you're looking for. He, he's not part of this world like the gods you expect. But look at how he's already treated you. When you were going your own way, not knowing he was even there, not even asking him for his help, he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. <laughs> Do you see the point in what Paul's saying here? Do you see why it's such good news that God is not who they thought he was? Paul has come to offer them a God who knows better than they do what they need. A God who's already paying attention to their needs when they aren't even paying attention to him. And a God who's given them gifts and provision and protection and love that they could never have paid for. It reminds me of what Jesus said about paganism and what it is to have God for your father. In Luke's gospel, so part one of the story that, that for which Acts is part two. In chapter 12, listen to what Jesus said to his disciples. I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, or about your body, what you'll put on. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But, but if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you're to eat and what you're to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things. All the nations, these Gentiles, these people living in Lystra, pagans, they seek after these things. They live as if they won't get but what they ask for and pay for. You're not pagans. Why? Jesus continues, your father knows that you need them. Friends, here's what we can learn from it. We got to be so careful in our mission and our holding out of this message here and around the world that we're offering Jesus as he is, as the Son of God who entered our world to pay the penalty for sin that we could never afford to pay except with our lives. That Jesus is now risen again, living in a body as real as yours or mine, and will one day return. That Jesus is therefore Lord of all, the one and only Lord that there is, the Lord that deserves all of our allegiance in every part of our lives. We must offer Jesus as he is, not an accessory to life or a resource for going after what we might already want for ourselves. There are some kind of quick-hitting results we might could get in the world if we tried to trim Jesus down to size or fit him into someone's already existing expectations of what a good life would be. Christian history is littered with this mistake by, made by well-meaning Christians. Jesus as a way to a social vision that you already have that overlaps a bit with things Jesus has taught. Prosperity gospel teaching, where Jesus is just the power source you need in your life to accomplish all your wildest dreams. Jesus as your butler. We will be misunderstood, and so we have to be so careful to make sure Jesus is not domesticated, not filtered through a vision that doesn't reach beyond this world or our sense of what's best. We have, we have better news than this. It's costly news to receive it, but it's 
better news. There's life in it. And because it'll be misunderstood, we've got to be careful to push past that misunderstanding and be clear about who he is. There's one final expectation that we should draw for our mission in the world from Acts chapter 14. The final expectation is that we should expect to plant churches. As we go out in our mission in the world, following their footsteps, taking up the, ch- the call of Acts 1-8 to be my witnesses throughout Judea and Samaria and all the ends of the earth, as we take that up, we ought to expect to plant churches. Last week, the first thing that we noticed about this first missionary journey was that it began with a local church. That was the beginning of, of chapter 13. It was the church in Antioch who was responsible for this mission. They sent out Paul and Barnabas. Now notice that the last thing that happens in this first missionary journey, besides Paul's report, is Paul working to establish new churches where people have come to faith. He passes back through all the places he's already gone in verse 21. From Derby, he goes back to Lystra. He goes back to Iconium. He goes back to Antioch. And look what he's doing as he goes following up with people who'd already become Christians. He's not just interested in recording his numbers and kind of spraying the gospel out there and then moving on. He's, he's cultivating something that he, will, he wants to see stand the test of time. And for that, he's focused on two things. He's reinforcing the gospel message. That's, uh, that, that's here in verse 22. He's strengthening their souls, encouraging them to continue in the faith. What they've already believed, he wants to keep on teaching them over and over and over. And... He's establishing elders in every church. He's making sure they have the teachers they need to carry on this work when he's gone, the leaders they need to disciple one another and to get the pastoral care they're going to need, especially when things get tough. He's he's reinforcing the message that's the heart of their connection to one another and the leaders they're going to need to hold it together and to cultivate it and strengthen it. Now, that's not all you need for a faithful local church, not by any stretch of the imagination, but it's really core to what a faithful church is. And the biggest point I want you to take from what Paul's doing here at the end of his journey is that he's not just leaving these people to chance, hoping they'll stick together. He's putting in place the structures that the New Testament always celebrates for local church life, the things that you need if you want to stay thriving and and growing as a Christian. Christianity is a team sport, we've often said. It's a lot more like Team USA basketball than Team USA track and field. You're not competing on your own for you to, to, to carry on, for you to go the distance for you to have the health that you need for the journey. You need a faithful local church. That's going to need a, a clear gospel teaching, and it's going to need the structures that God has put in place to make sure that church is healthy. Paul is, is, not just, is not just going as fast as he can from door to door, sharing the gospel and moving on. Paul is doing the work of building institutions because we can't do without them. Friends, the point for us is that our work isn't finished until local churches are formed. When we send people, when we send money, when we pray for work abroad, this is what we're focused on. In our church, this is what we're focused on. On people and organizations that understand the local church isn't replaceable. And our job is to start new ones. It's a question we ask of potential partners. It's a focus of our training of our workers when they go. It's a focus of the training they get from partners that we partner with to send them. And it should be the focus of our prayers, both as individuals and as a church, that healthy, thriving local churches would pop up everywhere there have been conversions all over the world and that they would thrive until the end of time. This is our responsibility. This is what we should expect 
from the mission God has given to us when we take it up. Now, friends, I want to pause here and pray over our mission that the Lord has given us, that he would help us to be faithful before we celebrate together a baptism into the very type of local church that Paul was here putting his hands to, to forming. I want to pray and, and, and transition us now into celebrating the success of this mission that God has been carrying out through us, even here in our own local, local church. Let's, let's pray. Father, we, uh, we, we do honor you as the God behind every hope that we have, as the only true and living God that exists, as the God who has given and given and given even when we didn't know to ask and didn't pay attention to the gifts we received. You alone are God, and you are so good. We come to you as your children, to a father, praying that you'll help us not just to hold on in faith for ourselves, but to be faithful to this mission you've given us around the world. And we pray that you would keep our expectations clear and realistic and grounded in your word. And that as we go forward, we would go with your help and our confidence in your power to save. And now as we prepare to baptize our brothers into this church that you've given us, we pray that you would help us to learn as we hear from them and to receive the joy that should be ours in this good, good day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.